Chapter 55 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dread, Chapter 55, Lynch Law Again. The reader next beholds Clayton at Magnolia Grove, whither he had fled to recruit his exhausted health and spirits. He had been accompanied there by Frank Russell. Our readers may often have observed how long habits of intimacy may survive between two persons who have embarked in moral courses, which, if pursued, must eventually separate them forever for such is the force of moral elements that the ambitious and self-seeking cannot always walk with those who love good for its own sake in this world however where all these things are imperfectly developed habits of intimacy often subsist a long time between the most opposing affinities the fact was that russell would not give up the society of clayton he admired the very thing in him which he wanted himself, and he comforted himself for not listening to his admonitions by the tolerance and good nature with which he had always heard them. When he heard that he was ill, he came to him and insisted upon traveling with him, attending him with the utmost fidelity and kindness. Clayton had not seen Anne before since his affliction, both because his time had been very much engaged, and because they who cannot speak of their sorrows often shrink from the society of those whose habits of intimacy and affection might lead them to desire such confidence. But he was not destined in his new retreat to find the peace he desired. Our readers may remember that there were intimations conveyed through his sister some time since of discontent arising in the neighborhood. The presence of Tom Gordon soon began to make itself felt. As a conductor introduced into an electric atmosphere will draw to itself the fluid, so he became an organizing point for the prevailing dissatisfaction. He went to dinner parties and talked. He wrote in the nearest paper. He excited the inflammable and inconsiderate. And before he had been there many weeks, a vigilance association was formed among the younger and more hot-headed of his associates to search out and extirpate covert abolitionism. Anne and her brother first became sensible of an entire cessation of all those neighborly acts of kindness and hospitality in which southern people, when in good humor, are so abundant. At last, one day Clayton was informed that three or four gentlemen of his acquaintance were wishing to see him in the parlor below. On descending, he was received first by his nearest neighbor, Judge Oliver, a fine-looking elderly gentleman of influential family connection. He was attended by Mr. Bradshaw, whom we have already introduced to our readers, and by a Mr. Knapp, who was a very wealthy planter, a man of great energy and ability, who had for some years figured as the representative of his native state in Congress. It was evident, by the embarrassed air of the party, that they had come on business of no pleasing character. It is not easy for persons, however much excited they may be, to enter at once upon offensive communications to persons who receive them with calm and gentlemanly civility. Therefore, after being seated and having discussed the ordinary topics of the weather and the crops, the party looked one upon another in a little uncertainty which had begun the real business of the interview. Mr. Clayton, at length, said Judge Oliver, we are really sorry to be obliged to make disagreeable communications to you. 
we have all of us had the sincerest respect for your family and for yourself. I have known and honored your father many years, Mr. Clayton, and for my own part, I must say I anticipated much pleasure from your residence in our neighborhood. I am really concerned to be obliged to say anything unpleasant, but I am under the necessity of telling you that the course you have been pursuing with regard to your servants being contrary to the laws and usages of our social institutions can no longer be permitted among us. You are aware that the teaching of slaves to read and write is forbidden by the law under severe penalties. We have always been liberal in the interpretation of this law. Exceptional violations conducted with privacy and discretion in the case of favored servants whose general good conduct seems to merit such confidence have from time to time existed and passed among us without notice or opposition but the institution of a regular system of instruction to the extent and degree which exists upon your plantation is a thing so directly in the face of the law that we can no longer tolerate it, and we have determined, unless this course is dropped, to take measures to put the law into execution. I had paid my adopted state the compliment, said Clayton, to suppose such laws to be a mere relic of barbarous ages, which the practical Christianity of our times would treat as a dead letter. I began my arrangements in all good faith, not dreaming that there could be found those who would oppose a course so evidently called for by the spirit of the gospel and the spirit of the age. You are entirely mistaken, sir, said Mr. Knapp in a tone of great decision. If you suppose these laws are, or can ever be, a matter of indifference to us, or can be suffered to become a dead letter, sir, they are founded in the very nature of our institutions. They are indispensable to the preservation of our property and the safety of our families. Once educate the Negro population in the whole system of our domestic institutions is at an end. Our Negroes have acquired already, by living among us, a degree of sagacity and intelligence, which makes it difficult to hold an even reign over them. And, once open the flood gates of education, and there is no saying where they and we might be carried. I, for my part, do not approve of these exceptional instances Judge Oliver mentioned. Generally speaking, those Negroes whose intelligence and good conduct would make them the natural recipients of such favors are precisely the ones who ought not to be trusted with them. It ruins them. Why, just look at the history of the insurrection that very nearly cut off the whole city of Charleston. What sort of men were those who got it up? They were just your steady, thoughtful, well-conducted men. Just the kind of men that people are teaching to read because they think they're so good it can do no harm. Sir, my father was one of the magistrates on the trial of those men, and I have heard him say often that there was not one man of bad character among them. They had all been remarkable for their good character. Why, there was that Denmark Vesey who was the head of it. For twenty years he served his master and was the most faithful creature that ever breathed. And after he got his liberty, everybody respected him and liked him. Why, at first my father said the magistrates could not be brought to arrest him. They were so sure that he could not have been engaged in such an affair. Now, all the leaders in that affair could read and write. They kept their lists of names, and nobody knows or ever will know how many were down on them. 
for those fellows were deep as the grave, and you could not get a word out of them. Sir, they died and made no sign. But all this is a warning to us. And do you think, said Clayton, that if men of that degree of energy and intelligence are refused instruction, they will not find means to get knowledge for themselves? And if they do get it themselves, in spite of your precautions, they will assuredly use it against you. The fact is, gentlemen, it is inevitable that a certain degree of culture must come from their intercourse with us, and minds of a certain class will be stimulated to desire more, and all the barriers we put up will only serve to inflame curiosity, and will make them feel a perfect liberty to use the knowledge they conquer from us against us. In my opinion, the only sure defense against insurrection is systematic education by which we shall acquire that influence over their minds which our superior cultivation will enable us to hold. Then, as fast as they become fitted to enjoy rights, we must grant them. Not we indeed, said Mr. Knapp, striking his cane upon the floor. We are not going to lay down our power in that way. We will not allow any such beginning. We must hold them down firmly and consistently. For my part, I dislike even the system of oral religious instruction. It starts their minds and leads them to want something more. It's indiscreet, and I always said so. As for teaching them out of the Bible, why, the Bible is the most exciting book that ever was put together. It always starts up the mind, and it's unsafe. Don't you see, said Clayton, what an admission you're making? What sort of a system must this be that requires such a course to sustain it? I can't help that, said Mr. Knapp. There's millions and millions invested in it, and we can't afford to risk such an amount of property for mere abstract speculation. The system is as good as 40 other systems that have prevailed and will prevail. We can't take the framework of society to pieces. We must proceed with things as they are. And now, Mr. Clayton, another thing I have to say to you, said he, looking excited and getting up and walking the floor. It has been discovered that you receive incendiary documents through the post office, and this cannot be permitted, sir. The color flushed into Clayton's face, and his eye kindled as he braced himself in his chair. By what right, he says, does anyone pry into what I receive through the post office? Am I not a free man? No, sir, you are not, said Mr. Knapp. Not free to receive that which may imperil a whole neighborhood. You are not free to store barrels of gunpowder on your premises where they may blow up ours. Sir, we are obliged to hold the mail under supervision in this state, and suspected persons will not be allowed to receive communications without oversight. Don't you remember that the general post office was broken open in Charleston, and all the abolition documents taken out of the mail bags and consumed, and a general meeting of all the most respectable citizens headed by the clergy in their robes of office solemnly confirmed the deed. I think, Mr. Knapp, said Judge Oliver, interposing in a milder tone, that your excitement is carrying you further than you're aware. I should rather hope that Mr. Clayton would perceive the reasonableness of our demand and of himself forego the taking of these incendiary documents. I take no incendiary documents, said Clayton warmly. It is true I take an anti-slavery paper edited at Washington, in which the subject is fairly and coolly discussed. 
I hold it no more than every man's duty to see both sides of a question. Well, there now, said Mr. Knapp, you see the disadvantage of having your slaves taught to read. If they could not read your papers, it would be no matter what you took. But to have them get to reasoning on these subjects and spread their reasonings through our plantations, why, there'll be the devil to pay at once. You must be sensible said Judge Oliver, that there must be some individual rights which we resign for the public good. I have looked over the paper you speak of, and I acknowledge it seems to me very fair. But then in our peculiar and critical position, it might prove dangerous to have such reading about my house, and I never have it. In that case, said Clayton, I wonder you don't suppress your own newspapers, for as long as there is a congressional discussion, or a Fourth of July oration, or senatorial speech in them, so long they are full of incendiary excitement. Our history is full of it. Our state bills of rights are full of it. The lives of our fathers are full of it. We must suppress our whole literature if we would avoid it. Now, don't you see, said Mr. Knapp, you have stated just so many reasons why slaves must not learn to read. To be sure I do, said Clayton, if they are always to remain slaves, if we are never to have any views of emancipation for them. Well, they are to remain slaves, said Mr. Knapp, speaking with excitement. Their condition is a finality. We will not allow the subject of emancipation to be discussed even. Then God have mercy on you, said Clayton solemnly, for it is my firm belief that in resisting the progress of human freedom, you will be found fighting against God. It isn't the cause of human freedom, said Mr. Knapp hastily. They are not human. They are an inferior race made expressly for subjection and servitude. The Bible teaches this plainly. Why don't you teach him to read it then, said Clayton coolly. Long and the short of the matter is, Mr. Clayton, said Mr. Knapp, walking nervously up and down the room, you'll find this is not a matter to be trifled with. We come as your friends to warn you, and if you don't listen to our warnings, we shall not hold ourselves responsible for what may follow. You ought to have some consideration for your sister, if not for yourself. I confess, said Clayton, I had done the chivalry of South Carolina the honor to think that a lady could have nothing to fear. It is so generally, said Judge Oliver, but on this subject there is such a dreadful excitability in the public mind that we cannot control it. You remember when the commissioner was sent by the legislature of Massachusetts to Charleston. He came with his daughter, a very cultivated and elegant young lady, but the mob was rising, and we could not control it, and we had to go and beg them to leave the city. I, for one, wouldn't have been at all answerable for the consequences if they had remained. I must confess, Judge Oliver, said Clayton, that I have been surprised this morning to hear South Carolinians palliating to such events in your history, resulting from mob violence as the breaking open of the post office and the insult to the representative of a sister state who came in the most peaceable and friendly spirit, and to womanhood in the person of an accomplished lady. Is this hydra-headed monster, the mob, to be our governor? Oh, it is only upon this subject, said all three of the gentlemen at once. This subject is exceptional. And do you think, said Clayton, that you can set the land on fire to burn just so high and no higher? You may depend upon it, you will find that you cannot. 
The mob that you smile on and encourage when it does work that suits you will one day prove itself your master in a manner that you will not like. Well now, Mr. Clayton, said Mr. Bradshaw, who had not hitherto spoken, you see, this is a very disagreeable subject, but the fact is we came in a friendly way to you. We all appreciate, personally, the merits of your character and the excellence of your motives. But really, sir, there is an excitement rising. There is a state of the public mind which is getting every day more and more inflammable. I talked with Miss Anne on this subject some months ago and expressed my feelings very fully. And now, if you will only give us a pledge that you will pursue a different course, we shall have something to take hold of to quiet the popular mind. If you'll just write and stop your paper for the present and let it be understood that your plantation system is to be stopped, then the thing will gradually cool itself off. Gentlemen, said Clayton, you are asking a very serious thing for me, and one which requires reflection. If I am violating the direct laws of the state, and these laws are to be considered as still in vital force, there is certainly some question with regard to my course. But still I have responsibilities for the moral and religious improvement of those under my care, which are equally binding. I see no course but removal from the state. Of course we should be sorry, said Judge Oliver. You should be obliged to do that. Still, we trust you will see the necessity and our motives. Necessity is the tyrant's plea, I believe, said Clayton, smiling. At all events, it is a strong one, replied Judge Oliver, smiling also. But I'm glad we have had this conversation. I think it will enable me to pacify the minds of some of our hot-headed young neighbors and prevent threatened mischief. After a little general conversation, the party separated on apparently friendly terms, and Clayton went to seek counsel with his sister and Frank Russell. Anne was indignant with that straight-out and generous indignation which belongs to women, who, generally speaking, are ready to follow their principles to any result with more inconsiderate fearlessness than men. She had none of the anxieties for herself which Clayton had for her. Having once been witness to the brutalities of a slave mob, Clayton could not, without a shudder, connect any such possibilities with his sister. I think, said Anne, we had better give up this miserable sham of a free government, of freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and all that, if things must go on in this way. Oh, said Frank Russell, the fact is that our republic in these states is like that of Venice. It's not a democracy, but an oligarchy, and the mob is its standing army. We are, all of us, under the Council of Ten, which has its eyes everywhere. We are free enough as long as our actions please them. When they don't, we shall find their noose around our necks. It's very edifying, certainly, to have these gentlemen call on you to tell you they will not be answerable for consequences of excitement which they are all the time stirring up. For after all, who cares what you do if they don't? The large proprietors are the ones interested. The rabble are their hands. And this warning about popular excitement just means, Sir, if you don't take care, I shall let out my dogs, and then I won't be answerable for consequences. And you call this liberty, said Anne indignantly. Oh, well, said Russell, this is a world of humbugs. We call it liberty because it's an agreeable name. After all, what is liberty that people make such a breeze about? We are all slaves to one thing or another. 
Nobody is absolutely free except Robinson Crusoe in the desolate island, and he tears all his shirts to pieces and hangs them up as signals of distress that he may get back into slavery again. For all that, said Anne, warming, I know there is such a thing as liberty, all that nobleness and enthusiasm which has animated people in all ages, for liberty cannot be in vain. Who does not thrill at those words of the Marseillaise? O liberty, can men resign thee, once having felt thy generous flame? Can dungeons, bolts, or bars confine thee, or whips thy noble spirit tame? These are certainly agreeable myths, said Russell, but these things will not bear any close looking into. Liberty has generally meant the liberty of me and my nation and my class to do what we please, which is a very pleasant thing, certainly, to those who are on the upper side of the wheel, and probably involving much that's disagreeable to those who are under. That is a heartless, unbelieving way of talking, said Anne, with tears in her eyes. I know there have been some right, true, noble souls, in whom the love of liberty has meant the love of right, and the desire that every human brother should have what rightly belongs to him. It is not my liberty, nor our liberty, but the principle of liberty itself that they strove for. Such a principle, carried out logically, would make smashing work in this world, said Russell. In this sense, where is there a free government on earth? What nation ever does, or ever did, respect the right of the weaker, or ever will, till the millennium comes? And that's too far off to be of much use in practical calculations. So don't let's break our hearts about a name. For my part, I am more concerned about these implied threats. As I said before, the hand of Joab is in this thing. Tom Gordon is visiting in this neighborhood, and you may depend upon it that this, in some way, comes from him. He is a perfectly reckless fellow, and I am afraid of some act of violence. If he should bring up a mob, whatever they do, there will be no redress for you. These respectable gentlemen, your best friends, will fold their hands and say, Ah, oh, poor fellow, we told him so, while others will put their hands complacently in their pockets and say, Served him right. I think, said Clayton, there will be no immediate violence. I understood that they pledged as much when they departed. If Tom Gordon is in the camp, said Russell, they may find that they have reckoned without their host in promising that. There are two or three young fellows in this vicinity who, with his energy to direct them, are reckless enough for anything. And there is always an abundance of excitable rabble to be got for a drink of whiskey. The event proved that Russell was right. Anne's bedroom was in the back part of the cottage, opposite the little grove where stood her schoolroom. She was awakened about one o'clock that night by a broad, ruddy glare of light, which caused her at first to start from her bed with the impression that the house was on fire. At the same instant, she perceived that the air was full of barbarous and dissonant sounds, such as the beating of tin pans, the braying of horns, and shouts of savage merriment intermingled with slang oaths and curses. In a moment, recovering herself, she perceived that it was her schoolhouse which was in a blaze, crisping and shriveling the foliage of the beautiful trees by which it was surrounded, and filling the air with a lurid light. She hastily dressed, and in a few moments Clayton and Russell knocked at the door. Both were looking very pale. "'Don't be alarmed,' said Clayton." 
putting his arm around her with that manner which shows that there is everything to fear. I am going out to speak to them. Indeed, you are going to do no such thing, said Frank Russell decidedly. This is no time for any extra displays of heroism. These men are insane with whiskey and excitement. They have probably been especially inflamed against you, and your presence would irritate them still more. Let me go out. I understand the ignoble vulgus better than you do. Besides which, providentially, I haven't any conscience to prevent my saying and doing what is necessary for an emergency. You shall see me lead off this whole yelling pack at my heels in triumph. And now, Clayton, you take care of Anne like a good fellow till I come back, which may be about four or five o'clock tomorrow morning. I shall toll all these fellows down to Muggins and leave them so drunk they cannot stand for one three hours. So saying, Frank proceeded hastily to disguise himself in a shaggy old greatcoat and to tie around his throat a red bandana silk handkerchief with a very fiery and dashing tie, and surmounting these equipments by an old hat which had belonged to one of the servants, he stole out of the front door, and passing around through the shrubbery, was very soon lost in the throng who surrounded the burning building. He soon satisfied himself that Tom Gordon was not personally among them, that they consisted entirely of the lower class of whites. So far so good, he said to himself, and springing on to the stump of a tree, he commenced a speech in that peculiar slang dialect which was vernacular with them, and of which he perfectly well understood the use. With his quick and ready talent for drollery, he soon had them around him in paroxysms of laughter, and complimenting their bravery, flattering and cajoling their vanity, he soon got them completely in his power, and they assented, with a triumphant shout, to the proposition that they should go down and celebrate their victory at Muggins' Grocery, a low haunt about a mile distant, whither, as he predicted, they all followed him. And he was as good as his word, in not leaving them till all were so completely under the power of liquor as to be incapable of mischief for the time being. About nine o'clock the next day he returned, finding Clayton and Anne seated together at breakfast. Now, Clayton, he said, seating himself, I am going to talk to you in good, solemn earnest for once. The fact is, you are checkmated. Your plans for gradual emancipation or reform or anything tending in that direction, are utterly hopeless. And if you want to pursue them with your own people, you must either send them to Liberia or to the northern states. There was a time fifty years ago when such things were contemplated with some degree of sincerity by all the leading minds at the South. That time is over. From the very day that they began to open new territories to slavery, the value of this kind of property mounted up so as to make emancipation a moral impossibility. It is, as they told you, a finality. And don't you see how they make everything in the Union bend to it? Why, these men are about only three-tenths of the population of the southern states, and yet the other seven-tenths virtually have no existence— all they do is to vote as they are told, and they know they must, being too ignorant to know any better. The mouth of the North is stuffed with cotton, and will be kept full as long as it suits us. Good, easy gentlemen, they are so satisfied with their pillows and other accommodations inside of the car that they don't trouble themselves to reflect that we are the engineers, nor to ask where we are going. And when anyone does wake up and pipe out in melancholy inquiry, we slam the door in his face and tell him, Mind your own business, sir, 
and he leans back on his cotton pillow and goes to sleep again, only whimpering a little that we might be more polite. They have their fanatics up there. We don't trouble ourselves to put them down. We make them do it. They get up mobs on our account to hoot troublesome ministers and editors out of their cities, and their men that they send to Congress invariably do all our dirty work. There's now and then an exception, it is true, but they only prove the rule. If there was any public sentiment at the North for you reformers to fall back upon, you might, in spite of your difficulties, do something, but there is not. They are all implicated with us, except the class of born fanatics like you, who are walking in that very unfashionable, narrow way we've heard of. Well, said Anne, let us go out of state then. I will go anywhere, but I will not stop the work that I have begun. End of chapter 55. Lynch Law Again. Recording by Pete McKelvin.